0: The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 speeches. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of public address. My choice of the speeches you hear here should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered Great speeches. The first essential in any civilization is that the man and woman shall be father and mother of healthy children, so that the race shall increase and not decrease. If that is not so, if through no fault of the society there is failure to increase, it is a great misfortune. If the failure is due to the deliberate and willful fault, then it is not merely a misfortune, it is one of those crimes of ease and self indulgence of shrinking from pain and effort and risk, which in the long run nature punishes more heavily than any other. If we of the great republics, if we, the free people who claim to have emancipated ourselves from the thraldom of wrong and error, bring down on our heads the curse that comes upon the willfully barren, then it will be an idle waste of breath to prattle of our achievements, to boast of all that we have done. No refinement of life, no delicacy of taste, no material progress, no sordid heaping up of riches, no sensuous development of art and literature can in any way compensate for the loss of the great fundamental virtues. And of these great fundamental virtues, the greatest is the race's power to perpetuate the race. Character must show itself in the man's performance, both of the duty he owes himself and of the duty he owes the state. The man's foremost duty is owed to himself and his family, and he can do this duty only by earning money, by providing what is essential to material well-being. It is only after this has been done that he can hope to build a higher superstructure on the solid material foundation. It is only after this has been done that he can help in his movements for the general well-being. He must pull his own weight first, and only after this can his surplus strength be of use to the general public. It is not good to excite that bitter laughter which expresses contempt, and contempt is what we feel for the being whose enthusiasm to benefit mankind is such that he is a burden to those nearest him, who wishes to do great things for humanity in the abstract, but who cannot keep his wife in comfort or educate his children. Nevertheless, while laying all stress on this point, While not merely acknowledging, but insisting upon the fact that there must be a basis of material well-being for the individual as for the nation, let us with equal emphasis insist that this material well-being represents nothing but the foundation, and that the foundation, though indispensable, is worthless unless upon it is raised the superstructure of a higher life. That is why I decline to recognize the mere multimillionaire, the man of mere wealth, as an asset of value to any country, and especially as not an asset to my own country. If he has earned or uses his wealth in a way that makes him a real benefit, of real use, and such is often the case, why, then he does become an asset of real worth. But it is the way in which it has been earned or used, and not the mere fact of wealth, that entitles him to the credit. There is need in business, as in most other forms of human activity, of the great guiding intelligences. Their places cannot be supplied by any number of lesser intelligences. It is a good thing that they should have ample recognition, ample reward. But we must not transfer our admiration to the reward instead of to the deed rewarded. And if what should be the reward exists without the service having been rendered, then admiration will only come from those who are mean of soul. The truth is that after a certain measure of tangible material success or reward has been achieved, the question of increasing it becomes of constantly less importance compared to the other things that can be done in life. It is a bad thing for a nation to raise and to admire a false standard of success, and there can be no falser standard than that set by the deification of material well-being in and for itself. But the man who, having far surpassed the limits of providing for the wants, both of the body and mind, of himself and of those depending upon him, then piles of a great fortune, for the acquisition or retention of which he returns no corresponding benefit to the nation as a whole, should himself be made to feel that, so far from being desirable, he is an unworthy citizen of the community, that he is to be neither admired nor envied, his right-thinking fellow countrymen put him low in the scale of citizenship, and leave him to be consoled by the admiration of those whose level of purpose is even lower than his own. My position as regards the moneyed interests can be put in a few words. In every civilized society, property rights must be carefully safeguarded. Ordinarily, and in the great majority of cases, human rights and property rights are fundamentally, and in the long run, identical. But when it clearly appears that there is a real conflict between them, human rights must have the upper hand, for property belongs to man and not man to property. In fact, it is essential to good citizenship clearly to understand that there are certain qualities which we in a democracy are prone to admire in and of themselves, which ought by rights to be judged admirable or the reverse solely from the standpoint of the use made of them. Foremost among these, I should include two very distinct gifts, the gift of money-making and the gift of oratory. Money-making, the money-touch I have spoken of above, it is a quality which in a moderate degree is essential. It may be useful when developed to a very great degree, but only if accompanied and controlled by other qualities, and without such control, the possessor tends to develop into one of the least attractive types produced by a modern industrial democracy. So it is with the orator. It is highly desirable that a leader of opinion in democracy should be able to state his views clearly and convincingly. But all that the oratory can do of value to the community is enable the man thus to explain himself. If it enables the orator to put false values on things, it merely makes him power for mischief. Some excellent public servants have not that gift at all and must merely rely on their deeds to speak for them and unless oratory does represent genuine conviction based on good common sense and able to be translated into efficient performance, then the better the oratory, the greater the damage to the public it deceives. Indeed, it is a sign of marked political weakness in any commonwealth if the people tend to be carried away by mere oratory, if they tend to value words in and for themselves, as divorced from the deeds for which they are supposed to stand the phrase-maker, the phrase-monger, the ready-talker, however great his power, whose speech does not make for courage, sobriety, and right understanding, is simply a noxious element in the body politic, and it speaks ill for the public if he has influence over them. To admire the gift of oratory without regard to the moral quality behind the gift is to do wrong to the republic. Of course, All that I say of the orator applies with even greater force to the orator's latter-day and more influential brother, the journalist. The power of the journalist is great, but he is entitled neither to respect nor admiration because of that power unless it is used aright. He can do and often does great good. He can do and he often does infinite mischief all journalists, all writers, for the very reason that they appreciate the vast possibilities of their profession, should bear testimony against those who deeply discredit it. Offenses against taste and morals, which are bad enough in a private citizen, are infinitely worse if made into instruments for debauching the community through a newspaper. Mendacity, slander, sensationalism, inanity, vapid triviality, All are potent factors for the debauchery of the public mind and conscience. We'll continue reading from this speech transcript after a quick break. Now, back to where we left off. The excuse advanced for vicious writing, that the public demands it and that demand must be supplied, can no more be admitted than if it were advanced by purveyors of food who sell poisonous adulterations. In short, the good citizen in a republic must realize that he ought to possess two sets of qualities, and that neither avails without the other. He must have those qualities which make for efficiency, and that he must also have those qualities which direct the efficiency into channels for the public good. He is useless if he is inefficient. There is nothing to be done with that type of citizen for whom all that can be said is that he is harmless. Virtue, which is dependent upon a sluggish circulation, is not impressive." there is little place in active life for the timid good man. The man who is saved by weakness from robust wickedness is likewise rendered immune from robuster values. The good citizen in the Republic must first of all be able to hold his own. He is no good citizen unless he has the ability which will make him work hard and which at need will make him fight hard. The good citizen is not a good citizen unless he is an efficient citizen but if a man's efficiency is not guided and regulated by a moral sense, then the more efficient he is, the worse he is, the more dangerous to the body politic. Courage, intellect, all the masterful qualities, serve but to make a man more evil if they are merely used for that man's own advancement, with brutal indifference to the rights of others? It speaks ill for the community if the community worships these qualities and treats their possessors as heroes, Regardless of whether the qualities are used rightly or wrongly, it makes no difference as to the precise way in which this sinister efficiency is shown. It makes no difference whether such a man's force and ability betray themselves in a career of money maker or politician, soldier or orator, journalist or popular leader. If the man works for evil, then the more successful he is, the more he should be despised and condemned by all upright and far seeing men. To judge a man merely by success is an abhorrent wrong, and if the people at large habitually show judgment, if they grow to condone wickedness because the wicked man triumphs, they show their inability to understand that in the last analysis free institutions rest upon the character of citizenship, and that by such admiration of evil they prove themselves unfit for liberty. The homely virtues of the household... The ordinary, workaday virtues which make the woman a good housewife and housemother, which make the man a hard worker, a good husband and father, a good soldier at need, stand at the bottom of character. But, of course, many others must be added thereto if a state is said to be not only free but great. Good citizenship is not good citizenship if only exhibited in the home. There remains the duties of the individual in relation to the state, and these duties are none too easy under the conditions which exist where the effort is made to carry on the free government in a complex industrial civilization. Perhaps the most important thing the ordinary citizen, and above all, the leader of ordinary citizens has to remember in political life is that he must not be a sheer doctrinaire the closest philosopher, the refined and cultured individual who from his library tells how men ought to be governed under ideal conditions, is of no use in actual governmental work. And the one-sided fanatic, and still more the mob leader, and the insincere man who to achieve power promises what by no possibility can be performed, are not merely useless but noxious. THE CITIZEN MUST HAVE HIGH IDEALS, AND YET HE MUST BE ABLE TO ACHIEVE THEM IN PRACTICAL FASHION. NO PERMANENT GOOD COMES FROM ASPIRATIONS SO LOFTY THAT THEY HAVE GROWN FANTASTIC, AND HAVE BECOME IMPOSSIBLE, AND INDEED UNDESIRABLE TO REALIZE. THE IMPRACTICAL VISIONARY IS FAR LESS OFTEN THE GUIDE AND PRECURSOR THAN HE IS THE EMBITTERED FOE OF THE REAL PERFORMER, OF THE MAN WHO, WITH STUMBLINGS AND SHORTCOMING, YET DOES, IN SOME SHAPE, IN PRACTICAL FASHION, give effect to the hopes and desires of those who strive for better things. Woe to the empty phrase-maker, to the empty idealist, who, instead of making ready the ground for the man of action, turns against him when he appears and hampers him when he does work. Moreover, the preacher of ideals must remember how sorry and contemptible is the figure which he will cut, how great the damage that he will do if he does not himself in his own life Strive measurably to realize the ideals that he preaches for others. Let him remember also that the worth of the ideal must be largely determined by the success with which it can in practice be realized. We should abhor the so-called practical men whose practicality assumes the shape of that peculiar baseness which finds its expression in disbelief in morality and decency, in disregard of high standards of living and conduct." Such a creature is the worst enemy of the body of politic, but only less desirable as a citizen is his nominal opponent and real ally, the man of fantastic vision, who makes the impossible better forever the enemy of the possible good. We can just as little afford to follow the doctrinaires of an extreme individualism as the doctrinaires of an extreme socialism. Individual initiative, so far from being discouraged, should be stimulated, and yet we should remember that as society develops and grows more complex, we continually find that things which once it was desirable to leave to individual initiative can, under changed conditions, be performed with better results by common effort. It is quite impossible, and equally undesirable, to draw in theory a hard and fast line which shall always divide the two sets of cases." This everyone who is not cursed with the pride of the closest philosopher will see if he will only take the trouble to think about some of our closet phenomena. For instance, when people live on isolated farms or in little hamlets, each house can be left to attend to its own drainage and water supply, but the mere multiplication of families in a given area produces new problems which, because they differ in size, are found to differ not only in degree— but in kind, from the old, and the questions of drainage and water supply have to be considered from the common standpoint. It is not a matter of abstract dogmatizing to decide when this point is reached. It is a matter to be tested by practical experiment. Much of the discussion about socialism and individualism is entirely pointless, because of the failure to agree on terminology. It is not good to be a slave of names. I am a strong individualist by personal habit, inheritance, and conviction, but it is a mere matter of common sense to recognize that the state, the community, the citizens acting together, can do a number of things better than if they were left to individual action. The individualism, which finds its expression in the abuse of physical force, is checked very early in the growth of civilization And we of today should in our turn strive to shackle or destroy that individualism which triumphs by greed and cunning, which exploits the weak by craft instead of ruling them by brutality. We ought to go with any man in the effort to bring about justice and the equality of opportunity, to turn the tool user more and more into the tool owner, to shift burdens so that they can be more equitably born the deadening effect on any race of the adoption of a logical and extreme socialistic system could not be overstated. It would spell sheer destruction. It would produce grosser wrong and outrage, fouler immortality than any existing system. But this does not mean that we may not with great advantage adopt certain of the principles professed by some given set of men who happen to call themselves socialists. To be afraid to do so would be to make a mark of weakness on our part. But we should not take part in acting a lie any more than in telling a lie. We should not say that men are equal where they are not equal, nor proceed upon the assumption that there is an equality where it does not exist, but we should strive to bring about a measurable equality, at least to the extent of preventing the inequality which is due to force or fraud. Are you still here? Cool! This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes Techno King, that's me, John C. Brandy, Fact Checker, Abraham Lincoln, French Consultant, Virginia Mitchell, Media Expert, Favor, Abasi Ike, Psychologist, Sigmund Freud, Rabbit Hole Advisor, Dr. Marg Parrott, Sound Designer, Guglielmo Marconi, Spanish Consultant, Cameron, J.K. Brandy, Videographer, Alfred Hitchcock, Audio Props, Les Paul, Inspiration, Napoleon Hill, and Earl Nightingale. We also have a website and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. I mean, I could read the URLs where you can subscribe, support, or leave one of those video or audio messages, but you really don't want me to do that. And those explicit and clickable links are in the show notes. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch, where we consider guests as well as consider guesting on other people's pods. And really, finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Ben Sound and from Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams, both on freesound.org. Pull.